1: you're listening to the london review of books podcast my name is thomas jones my guest this week is david runciman professor of politics at cambridge frequent contributor to the lrb and host of the talking politics podcast we're lucky to have got him for this episode before talking politics returns from its summer break which will be any day now he has a piece in the current issue of the LRB on the billionaire investor and self-styled libertarian Peter Thiel. It's a review of a book by the Bloomberg journalist Max Chafkin called The Contrarian: Peter Thiel and Silicon Valley's Pursuit of Power. Hello David and thank you very much for joining me. Hi. So, I suppose <laughs> the the big question is uh, who is Peter Thiel? And I suppose we start with a bit of biography for those who don't know.
0: Yeah, and so I'm one of those people who knew about him in, in sort of different snapshots. And until I read this book, I hadn't quite got the whole picture, because he's a, he's one of those characters who pops up in surprising places. So he's the son of quite devout Christian German immigrants to, to the United States. He was a chess prodigy as a child, as so many people in his world seem to have been. He went to Stanford, and he first acquired his reputation As a sort of provocateur of the liberal left, to combine those two terms, he founded a publication called the Stanford Review, which really was designed to rile people up on campus by, as he saw it, puncturing the liberal pieties, and he became notorious through that. Um, But his ambition was always to make money. He started out as an investor. He he established an investment fund, but he also helped to co-found PayPal, and. One of the things that's known about him is he has this sort of uncanny connection with what are now the richest people in the world when they weren't rich. So Elon Musk, uh, his his early career was in conjunction with Peter Thiel at PayPal, and Peter Thiel was one of the very first investors into Facebook, and he appears in the Social Network, the Aaron Sorkin film, as just for a sort of thirty seconds a cameo as a sort of ruthless guy who's not wearing a t-shirt who says to Mark Zuckerberg, if you get tough with the drifters that you're hanging out with, we we could all make a lot of money kind of thing. So he's an investor. He's a Silicon Valley guy, but he's not a technologist himself. But PayPal clearly has become one of the success stories, if if that's how you want to see it, of the early tech revolution and it's lasted. But he's also remains a very controversial political figure. He was a prominent Silicon Valley endorser of Donald Trump.
1: And one of the only ones, really, here in Bosnia. Yeah,
0: the only one of that level of prominence. And, and and I write about it in the piece, there's a question. Did he do it just to annoy everyone else in Silicon Valley? Yes. <laughs> and his pleasure in the horror that he causes is a big part of how he operates. But did, did he do it uh, because he believed in the Trump philosophy? No, but he certainly believed in some of the things that went along with the Republicans getting back in. Did he do it as a business opportunity? Yes. And what happened? The the famous occasion during the transition to Trump's presidency in December 2016, where Teal convened all of the Silicon Valley bigwigs to Trump Tower, the heads of all of the big Silicon Valley firms, plus Teal, plus some people that Teal had invited because he saw a money opportunity, including the head of the tiny firm, then Palantir. But at that very awkward meeting, Trump said of Teal, this guy saw what was happening before even we did. <laughs> it's probably not true, but I think, I think most people think Trump didn't think he was going to win, but Teal thought he might. But Teal also played the odds shrewdly. If you come out for Trump and you're a provocateur like Teal is and Trump goes down, no one really bats an eyelid. It's kind of, yeah, he would do that. But if you come out for Trump and he wins by some miracle, not only are you a far-sighted genius, but you will get your rewards. So he did get his rewards. He got two kinds of rewards. So he was invited to join the transition team and to help nominate people to disrupt the deep state. He was given an office in Trump Tower, and he came up with a list of 150 reactionaries, ultra-libertarians and other gurus who were way too out there for Trump. (laughs) It's that thing of when he actually confronted politics, they were even too out there for Steve Bannon. So there's some quite funny stuff in the book where Bannon says, well... You know, Thiel was a bit of a flop in that role because he really didn't get that politics is a bit more serious than that. On the other hand, Thiel also spotted that the Trump administration, like all administrations, had awful lots of money to distribute through particularly government defense contracts. And that the rise of Palantir comes with the Trump administration. He's in there. In that world, personal connections are almost everything. When people sign off on these big contracts, it really matters who you know. And by getting in early with Trump, Teal got in early with the people who made those kinds of decisions. Uh, it totally fitted his way of doing business. It was a great bet. But as he says, and he's quoted in the book as saying, it was my least contrarian bet ever. It was win-win for me. If Trump wins, I'm in.
1: And if Trump loses, who gives a damn? Yeah, there's a hedge of kind. And that, and Palantir is still there with those government contracts. Trump's gone. But Teal's still got those government contracts. Yeah, and it's that thing. He was meant to
0: disrupt the administrative state. But of course, what the business he's really in is capturing the administrative state. That's who he is. If he disrupted, if he properly disrupted the administrative state, he wouldn't make so much money.
1: So in the Stanford review, he was sort of an early culture warrior as well. As well as sort of, he was was early to Facebook, early to to PayPal, and he was early to the, to the culture wars, or the 21st century variant of it.
0: Yeah, and, and all the way through the story and, and the way the book tells the story, it's a, it's a good book. It's a, it's a serious piece of sort of investigative journalism that tries to pull together the different strands. It doesn't end up by sort of telling you who Peter Thiel is because it's not clear there is anything there. there, But it shows that all the way along, the sort of ideological warrior, culture war guy and the guy sniffing out ways to make money pretty much run hand in hand. It's very hard to disentangle what he's doing because he believes it or it's a conviction or even that it's just he enjoys it and what he's doing because he thinks this is a way to get close to people with real money and real power. And he's spotted pretty early on not only is goading the liberals fun and a quick way to become notorious, as it were. It wasn't back then a particularly crowded market on Stanford to say outrageous sort of anti-feminist things. So you get your name out there. But it also very quickly draws you to the attention of some people who have real money and power. And he's a genius at that. If there's a genius there, it's somehow his ability to pull together notoriety and an eye for where really big money can be made by capturing either the attention or frankly, the sort of checkbooks of very, very wealthy people.
1: And one of the most attention-grabbing things he did was when the wrestler Hulk Hogan sued the gossip news website Gawker for publishing a sex tape. And Teal bankrolled the lawsuit, didn't he? He paid mm. for Hogan to, to sue Gawker. And why did he do that? Yeah, it's a good
0: question. And some of the psychology here is hard to disentangle because in a way with Teal, the problem is there are always too many plausible explanations. And it was again, characteristically of him, both attention grabbing and not, because it was also done anonymously. It wasn't known until the court case itself that Teal was bankrolling him. He'd been looking for a while, according to the book, for a way of taking down Gorka. And it was because Gorka, nearly a decade earlier, had outed him as gay. He was known relatively widely in his, you know, in his small investment Silicon Valley world to be gay, but he didn't want it to be publicly known. And again, the book doesn't really talk about this, but there's some question about whether this is actually a genuine privacy issue, because he did come from a devout Christian background. And, you know, he may, like as many people are, he may have been genuinely uncomfortable with the idea that his personal life would be sort of Googleable. But it also seems to be the case that Gorka was after him generally, they mocked him. And actually, the outing piece is one of the more respectful things they ever wrote about him. Um, they said, you know, people should know this because it partly explains his outsideriness and it partly explains the way in which he had actually really opened to new talent and so on. But more generally, Gork attended to mock him, deride him for his pretentious philosophical pronouncements and his hypocrisy and so on. He went after them on this. He claimed it was a you know, ridding the, the online world of journalism of what he called a bad actor, so that he respected journalists so much, he wanted to get rid of the one that sort of gave them a bad name. The book suggests that the real reason was it happened, the the outing happened in late 2007. 2008, this is where it gets complicated, though Teal was one of the people who spotted early that the US economy was about to go down the toilet, and alerted his investment fund to the fact that if they, pre the collapse of Lehman and so on, if they shorted the US economy, there was huge money to be made, but they didn't do it. And one of the things is that his timing isn't always great. And his investment fund was really squeezed. And in his mind, he sort of connected Gorka's purient interest in his personal life with what he thought were his investors starting to get a bit wary of him. And that included, again, this is in the book, some Arab sovereign wealth funds run by governments, wouldn't be at all keen on the idea that Peter Thiel was gay. So it's this weird kind of melange of principle, opportunity, ruthlessness, and business
1: paranoia, which is pretty much who he is. Yeah, was characterised everything he does. And it, was, and it was particularly, I mean, it wasn't just Gorka as an institution. It was, it was this guy, Nick Denton, who was mm. one of the founders of Gorka, and he was particularly going after, wasn't he? Certainly,
0: some of it was personal, um, and there's a great account in the book of after Hulk Hogan was awarded this huge sum in damages against Gorka, which would have bankrupted them. And once it became clear that Teal was the person behind it, a meeting was brokered between Teal and Denton, where it was thought that these two guys who clearly hated each other nonetheless could sort of thrash out a way in which Teal got his pound of flesh and Gorka was able to limp on as a free voice in a world where libertarians are meant to believe in freedom. And the meeting happened, and they got to the point where it was clearly, you know, it'd been choreographed so that Teal was meant to say, "Okay, this is what I need." And Teal said, "I'm going to destroy you," and he did. He destroyed Gorka in that guise. He's not uh, a man who gives up the opportunity for revenge lightly.
1: Not that question of timing, and his reputation for sort of having this great prescience. But I mean, he he gets into things early, but he seems to get out a bit too quickly as well. And it happened sort of most famously with Facebook. I mean, he's he's very rich, but he's not. It's not Facebook money. No, primarily. it's not Facebook no. money. It's not Amazon money. It's not Elon Musk's money. You mentioned in the piece that he read, Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged at an Impressional Age. And check that on the other book that he's read at least 10 times, he says, is Lord of the Rings. And, of, and a lot of his companies are named after things in Tolkien. That and a palantir is is basically a crystal ball. And so this reputation for being able to see the future is partly his own, his sort of self mythology, isn't it? He kind of yeah. It's I mean it's so interesting that he he is prescient, no question.
0: He got in early with Trump. He's also. Like many shrewd people, he has an eye for the fact that, as it were, one big piece of prescience tends to allow people to ignore all the other ones where you weren't quite right. But there's a tendency for people to remember the spooky coincidence over all of the hundred times where the thing you thought would happen didn't come true. But the Facebook thing is is striking because I think the thing that people tend to forget about Zuckerberg as a different kind of Silicon Valley entrepreneur is Zuckerberg made a couple of business decisions that if you made them, it would persuade you that you shouldn't ever listen to advice. So it wasn't just Thiel, but many people were telling Zuckerberg to sell Facebook to Yahoo for a billion dollars. I think this is roughly a decade ago. On the grounds that you know a billion dollars doesn't come along very often. And Thiel in particular, as a founder, you know, an early investor and founder, uh, you're there at the on the ground floor of Facebook, was saying to Zuckerberg, you know, we've kind of reached the point where we really should think about offloading this thing. And Zuckerberg said no. And Facebook is now worth a trillion dollars. So if you were Zuckerberg, you would kind of in the same way that when Zuckerberg bought Instagram, people were telling him he vastly overpaid for this picture sharing business that employed almost no one at that point. It was the buy of the century. Zuckerberg is a genius in that sense. Zuckerberg does see the future. Teal doesn't. And their relationship is interesting because, in a way, Teal is the sort of father figure, the godfather figure. And Teal has contempt for Facebook, maybe partly because he's been wrong about it. He thinks it's a kind of flash in the pan. <laughs> and yet, maybe he's right too, in the sense that you know, Teal's line, one of his lines he said in a motivational talk. So, when Facebook had its IPO and the Shares were being publicly traded, and it initially looked like it had been overpriced. Uh, Thiel sold some of his shareholding. Again, big mistake. His shares would now be worth 10 times that, but he, he went, got out in the dip. And Zuckerberg invited him to give a talk to Facebook employees to try and sort of give them a vision of the future where Facebook is kind of going to come back and be this huge thing. And Thiel said to them, when I was a kid, we were promised colonies on the moon, and what we got instead was Facebook. He was contemptuous of it. So there's this weird dynamic that Thiel has carved out for himself this reputation as a sort of Lord of the Rings type seer. Whereas actually, when you look at his record, it's pretty choppy. Some lucky hits and a lot of misses. Whatever you think of Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg, there's something prophetic about him.
1: Yeah, he hasn't. I mean, the luck question, because obviously, the ones we see, the ones we know about, are the multi-billionaires and Mm. you think wow look at them they're so rich they must be geniuses but there's an element of there is an element of luck you make a lucky investment you become a billionaire you're the guy we know about all those people who invested Mm. badly you know you talk in the piece about the the people his foundation and he kind of gave seed money to these startups that went nowhere so many startups went nowhere and Mm. we don't remember those ones yeah
0: and and he is an investor so what he is not is an inventor of new technology Run, runs business it's true he ran paypal but he's an investor he's he's much more of a hedge fund guy than he is a, a zuckerberg or even a musk or a or a bezos for that matter investors you know it's it's a lot of it is luck some are clearly better than others but the investor genius is an oversold thing for sure i would say
1: and on on paper when paypal launched in 1999 teal said it was going to give citizens worldwide more direct control over their currencies and make it nearly impossible for corrupt governments to steal wealth from their people by means of inflation. So he he presented it as a as a kind of utopia and there was an ideological motivation behind it as well as a scheme to to make money.
0: Yeah and he's and he thinks the same now about bitcoin and blockchain technologies.
1: Because that obviously didn't happen with PayPal. It's quite a convenient way to pay for things online but it's not it's not a vehicle for capital flight which is probably just as well
0: yeah and also its early business model involved actually exploiting all the ways in which it allowed um, people who aren't comfortable with too much transparency in their transactions to do things it's conceivably that's part of the libertarian ethos too but i say in the piece teal's business model is over promise and under deliver make the grandest claims you can sign up as many people as you can cut corners ignore the rules try and drive out the competition and then if you do have a kind of semi-monopoly of some piece of cyberspace or, the, or any other part of the market, then exploit it to start selling people things they might actually want. And actually, even Palantir is a version of that, because Palantir is a sort of data analytics company that specializes in, in military and intelligence matters. And as far as I could tell, similar sort of model that lots of overpromising. this is transformative, this is going to change the way in which military and intelligence are run, get people to sign up for it. Actually, what it was was a sort of slightly more sophisticated way of presenting charts and spreadsheets. But by the time the army have signed up to your product, then you can sell them stuff. Um, And PayPal wasn't that dissimilar. And here it is entrenched. And there's Palantir entrenched. But the things that they promised at the beginning
1: have never been delivered. And Palantir, I mean, it explains, as you say, in the piece, this paradox of his I mean he professes to have this anti-state position this fundamentalist libertarian point of view but most of his money or a lot of his money comes from the federal government yeah and that was the thing that I,
0: I really noticed reading his story it's sort of the book doesn't make a big play of it but it emerges as this something about it you just think something doesn't add up here and then it's suddenly to me the penny dropped which is This is libertarianism as state capture, basically. And I don't think Teal's the only one. And it put me in mind of a book, uh, a classic of libertarian political philosophy, which is Robert Nozick's Anarchy, State and Utopia, which is not discussed by Chafkin in his book. But it's an influential book and influential in sort of Silicon Valley libertarian circles, published in 1974. It's famous for a number of things, but including this sort of market-based arguments showing how you get a state. So anarchism can't be sustained because even in an anarchic society, you're gonna get these sort of protection associations, as Nozick calls them, but they're basically protection rackets. people offering you protection for your property. These organizations will compete and one of them will emerge dominant and it will eventually become a monopoly. And that's the state, the monopoly of violence. But anything else is illegitimate. taxes to redistribute, to provide social security, welfare, all of that is theft. The only thing that can be justified is security of the more brutal kind. And as I was reading about Teal, for some reason this book kept coming into my mind and it suddenly sort of occurred to me that the thing about the minimal state, as Nozick calls it, this sort of giant protection association, is that in any society of scale even if it's minimal, it's going to have control over mind-boggling amounts of money. (laughs) It's, It's captured the security market. And if you were a ruthless business type, of course you would target it. Of course you would think that's where money's to be made. And yet this is the libertarian description of what the state is. The state is both this thing that's not allowed to interfere in our lives in order to make the poor better off, make the sick healthier, soften the edges of a miserable world because we're all free to make our own mistakes. But even the libertarian state is still a vast pot of money that's been extracted by force and then is at the discretion of bureaucrats, politicians and generals to spend. And so I think Thiel is a good example, and this is what I try and argue in the piece, is a good example of the ways in which, and I hadn't really thought about it until I read about him, libertarian philosophy, and state capture capitalism, are very closely connected. And suddenly, I thought it makes more sense, what
1: he's up to. Yeah, and still up to it. But, um, that Bloomberg reported last week that he's invested well, $20 million, so not much, but in a startup that's going to put cameras on satellites for the US government that can kind of see through materials. And you can see that's the idea. So they can see through buildings. And the idea to do investing in, in, in surveillance in that way, which you, it seems, again, a very sort of anti-libertarian kind of thing to invest in.
0: And he, one of the things he's famous for is, as a libertarian, nonetheless saying that what he believes is that the ultimate business model is to create a monopoly, that you should create something sufficiently Ayn Randian and new and exciting, that it has no competition, and then you will clean up. The state, of course, is a monopoly. But the other thing that comes across... Sort of at the margins of this book, is yes, the state is a monopoly, but it's not a monopoly that's run by super sophisticated people, certainly not when it comes to technology. A lot of them are, I'm guessing, the US state, quite credulous, quite easily persuaded that Teal's over promising has something behind it, a relatively captive market for him to peddle the kind of stuff he peddles breakthrough technologies that use AI to coordinate intelligence gathering all around the world and get you to find the bad guys in a nanosecond. US intelligence officers, I would imagine, are quite susceptible to that kind of pitch. And the money to be made is colossal. And so much of Silicon Valley and in the internet world, when
1: you dig down, has its roots in US military spending. Well, the Internet does, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean the Internet as a whole, all, all I mean there's a sense in which all tech billionaires owe their entire wealth to public spending because the Internet came out of Defence Department, R and D, DARPANET. And also it depends on physical infrastructure that wouldn't exist without massive government investment. And what's different about Teal in a way is he's just slightly more brazen about
0: it. There's something it's it's almost like he's the sort of X-ray that just lets you see through it a bit more clearly partly because he doesn't mouth any of the liberal pieties, So his support of Trump is an example of that. There's a great line in the book, and I can't actually remember who says it. But you know this anxiety among Republicans, that Facebook, because it seemed to come out of this sort of liberal minded Californian ethos, was sort of their enemy, and that what they needed was a kind of right wing Facebook, they needed a right wing version of social media. And someone says, don't you understand Facebook is that thing? (laughs) Facebook is your media. You're winning on Facebook hands down. Your stuff gets shared much more times than the boring liberal stuff. The fact that Zuckerberg is presenting as a liberal is irrelevant. Facebook is the connecting network of your movement. Whereas with Thiel, he's quite open about the fact that he's a Trumpian. But it's not as if he's a Trumpian and Zuckerberg was doing everything in his power to stop Trump from getting elected. Thiel's a Trumpian and Zuckerberg was mouthing the stuff that made it sound like he was a bit uncomfortable about Trump was getting elected while getting Trump elected. So there's something quite
1: bracing about Peter Thiel. Yeah, there's um, sort of an honesty. I mean, you mentioned earlier that thing he'd said about we were expecting colonies on the moon and we got Facebook. And the set of, I mean, Musk and Bezos are still talking about colonies on the moon, and they're going to space or, or Mars. Forget the moon. <laughs> yeah, we're going to Mars <laughs> and further. Exactly. The moon is the moon is a small fry. And yet, you know, sort of their adventures this summer. That Musk went just he didn't even get anywhere near as far as the moon. He barely made it into the thermosphere. So there's this. But again, that's the they're over overpromising and underdelivering too.
0: Yeah, and also the other person. I do make this comparison. Um, even though they seem like they're very different, is Richard Branson. So I wrote about Richard Branson in the LRB a while back. Tom Bauer did a sort of expose of him. And when I was reading about Teal, the reason I remembered reading about Branson is I had the same experience when reading about Branson. So his political philosophy is different. Branson is a sort of 1960s hippie, but he's not gone down the hard-nosed, anti-feminist, libertarian route despite some of the things the antics he gets up to in public and he he's a sort of climate guy and all that but his money is made out of the state uh richard branson is a state capture person he his business model is finding those things that government bureaucrats and politicians have it in their power to dispense rail franchises and virgin money virgin media virgin atlantic these things depend upon the regulators giving you access to what are often protected markets, that you then dress up as competition. And Branson and Teal aren't that different, despite the fact that on the surface they look completely different. And then, of course, Branson's been flying in space too. And there's that kind of thing that so much of the differences between these guys and they're all guys feel superficial. Um, and underneath it, there's a, there's a kind of fantasy overpromising version of who they are. There's a range of political views which are frankly irrelevant. And then there's an attempt to exploit
1: government because that's where the money is. Although I suppose Richard Branson did at least. I mean, he got his money by putting out the Sex Pistols music.
0: Well, he got his money originally by putting out Tubular Bells. <laughs> I, don't I don't think that... I mean, as a, the Tubular Bells is his Stanford review. <laughs> and the, the obsession with all of these things, with their origin stories, you know, there's, a, there's a real... Silicon Valley preoccupation with the garage where you know, the first X was come up with, uh, the moment in Zuckerberg's Harvard dorm where he mashed together the faces of the girls who wouldn't go out with him. And the origin stories are irrelevant. This is not about the light bulb moment, the point where these guys spotted this incredible gap in the market. The real big money, and, and Musk is another example of it. After all, Tesla doesn't exist without government, US government subsidies. The real money is in state capture of different forms. And then you can take a view as the libertarianism window dressing for that. As I say, I think there are two possibilities here. Either they're not really libertarians at all, or actually, deep down, libertarianism is that. Libertarianism is a deregulated world. In a deregulated world, It's much easier to capture the regulators.
1: This is the LRB Podcast. If you enjoy listening to it, you'll probably enjoy reading the London Review of Books. To subscribe from just one pound per issue, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen or click on the link below. This is the LRB Podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. Before I continue my conversation with David Runciman, I can tell you that next week on the podcast, we're starting a new series of close readings with Irina Dimitrescu and Mary Wellesley, who'll be looking at the lives and voices of women in medieval literature through four key figures, St Mary of Egypt, Julian of Norwich, The Wife of Bath and Marjorie Kemp. There'll be four episodes released every other week over two months, and you can buy all four books that'll be mentioned in the series directly from the London Review Bookshop. Find details of all that on our website at lrb.me forward slash medieval. That's lrb.me forward slash m-e-d-i-e-v-a-l. And there's also a link below this episode. And we move now on to some of his other interests. Um, Well, he he has his interest in anti-aging technology and, um, and cryonics. And I suppose they're kind of small, very small utopian ideas for the future, this living forever, or if you can't live forever, coming back to life sometime in the future. And he's bought this land in New Zealand as a way of sort of hedging against the climate crisis,
0: hedging the apocalypse. He's not alone in these things. Bezos is is currently investing heavily in anti-aging and living forever. And Teal has said that he thinks death is what, because they are people who really celebrate their ability to think outside the box. So the way the thinking goes is, well, none of us like death very hard to find someone who thinks death is a good thing. We're in the business of solving the things that are a problem for us. Why on earth wouldn't we try and solve death, the biggest problem of all? So that's what they do. I was reading, so I've spent probably too much time this summer reading Dominic Cummings's blog and paying for it. I'd be literally paying for it, (laughs) 10 pounds a month. And actually, this wasn't on the blog, I think this was him tweeting. But with the Bezos stuff about anti-aging, he, he then linked to someone who'd done a, a set of comments about how anti-aging is the new Bitcoin. And again, it all comes full circle, sort of back to Teal. So the way the argument went roughly was, we think we live in a world where states have to print money, because otherwise, it's not a safe world. So we accept all these things as sort of facts of life, like inflation. Why? What Bitcoin shows is that another world is possible. And even if Bitcoin doesn't exactly work and blockchain technology hasn't yet found a way of really doing money, it's completely changed the conversation. And now people are asking and disrupting by saying, why do we allow this? Why do we let governments do that? Why do I have to pay this tax? And so on. It's, it's the great disruptor. And this new move into anti-aging experiments and technologies will do the same to healthcare. Because the question that people never ask when they go to the doctor is, but why do I have to die? So imagine a healthcare system where people didn't accept that what health was was just managing decline, but started to ask, why? I don't want to decline. And then the whole thing has changed. It becomes a completely different business and a completely different business model it becomes much more about self monitoring, it becomes much more about a sort of constant updating of data to make sure that you're not falling behind what you need to fall behind. And of course, there's mind boggling amounts of money to be made. So conquering death is like conquering inflation.
1: It's so monumentally depressing. Well, I mean, I'm not
0: saying that that's <laughs> correct. I'm saying it's, it's a kind of it's a it's a It's surprisingly, when you see how these, particularly if you follow them through the, the, I don't know if it's even called the blogosphere anymore, but whatever that thing is where Cummings takes you somewhere, takes you somewhere, takes you somewhere, there's an amazing circularity to these arguments while, as you say, the world keeps turning.
1: I mean, mean, the other thing about Bitcoin, I mean, one of the reasons it doesn't work is, of course, it uses vast quantities of of electricity, that the amount of energy that is put into Bitcoin mining is... And, 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 and infrastructure and the production of that electricity and all of this stuff that's going on. But I suppose, that, again, that's, that's another form of state capture.
0: Yeah, and Bitcoin is... there's a piece in the New York Times this week which reminded me of a conference I went to about 10 years ago. So about 10 years ago, I went to a conference which was economic historians and computer scientists talking about blockchain a long time ago in, in the digital revolution. But people were starting to talk about it as a possible money And the economic historian said, this is an amazing technology, blockchain. You could do extraordinary things with it because of the kind of security that's built into it. But you do have to understand the only thing it could never be is money. I mean, it's a logical impossibility because the point about money is money has to have some corruptible flexibility built into it. That's its actual function. The reason we give it to governments is precisely because if you lock it down, like people try to do with the gold standard, at a certain point, its inflexibility destroys it, its ability to function socially. So great, blockchain, fantastic, but never think it can be money. And there's an article in the New York Times this week saying, the blockchain joke has gone a bit far because it's obviously not money. It's a sort of freaky investment opportunity and it has lots of potential useful social functions where you need to secure information but also make it a sort of collective enterprise. But it's not money. And now a government has fallen for the con. A government, El Salvador said we, we, we're willing to consider um, Bitcoin as money. The joke's gone too far. The governments have fallen for it. Made me think of Teal. Think about governments. Think about protection rackets. Think about the mafia. Think about people who control violence and power and extract large sums of money to do it, which is what politics is on a libertarian account. They're credulous. People with lots of violence and power and money will believe most extraordinary things
1: well it's sort of naive, naivety from the other side, but you sort of say all this money and then, and, like, and this excitement about blood transfusions from young people you know that thing says i'm not a vampire to try and to try and prolong looking to ways to prolong the lives of, of very mm. few immensely rich mm. old men or or immensely rich young men or youngish men or immensely rich young men okay but if If there and I suppose in a sense, I mean, Musk, in his way says, but I am trying to prevent the climate crisis Mm. by building luxury electric cars for everyone to drive. But I mean, is there is there an alternative reality in which instead of the the state capture and the self enrichment of this, that somehow that energy could be directed into solving the climate Mm. crisis? That's a big question. <laughs> more, 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 more <laughs> useful ways of, more useful ways for them to spend their time rather than cryogenically freezing themselves. Or I mean, or Bezos's, you know, slightly bizarre line it seems to me. He says, "Well, the Earth's going to burn, so we all have to find ways to live on Mars." And it's kind of, but it would be easier to, wouldn't it be easier to stop the Earth burning in the first place?
0: Yeah, I don't. I think I kind of only can try and answer that question
1: sideways, and I'm,
0: it makes again. It makes me think of things that. Dominic Cummings has written recently, and Dominic Cummings' blog is very interesting. So one of his lines is that government is a serious business, and we face huge risks, including around climate and other things. And it's basically incompetent. Democracy elects incompetence; incompetents are incapable of running the government. So government falls into the hands of bureaucrats. Bureaucrats are easily captured. Bureaucrats also succumb to groupthink, and basically, democracy doesn't work. And what we need to take much more seriously is not the skills that tend to be valued in democratic, bureaucratic systems, but those sets of skills which you see in the startup world, which are very rare too. There are a few people who are super able, sort of off the charts, able to, to get things done, to create organizations, to be fast moving, to be dynamic, to be flexible. And one of his examples of that is Bezos. Bezos is not the smartest guy in the world. He's not as smart as the people who build his technology for him, but he's smart enough to understand it. You have to be pretty smart. But he's a kind of off the charts genius, a certain kind of dynamic, organizational, entrepreneurial, and political building. So it's a bit Ayn Randian, but it's also something else. And the idea is, wouldn't it be great if some of that was in government? So he's not wrong about that, in a way. I mean, it, it comes with all sorts of weirdnesses. And it's it's very explicitly, we need to be willing to move beyond democracy in all sorts of ways, which is a point of view that one might want to question. But to relate it back to the Teal book and what I wrote, I think it is worth remembering. It's a familiar story, but it and pe- many people have said it, but it tends to get lost. We're not living in a world where it's super wealthy, freedom-loving libertarians, and then the people who are clinging on to the old analog, slow, cumbersome, welfarist state. It's all about the state. This, This is still the state's world. This is still a political world. The super wealthy people are as dependent on the state as the rest of us. And the rhetoric that there is a future that will bypass the state towards efficiency, living forever, and Bitcoin, and then there's getting stuck in the present where the 20th century democratic state will just grind to a halt while the world goes to hell. It's state versus state. It's what kind of state you want. It's not state versus no state. It's not politics versus freedom from politics. It's not liberty versus coercion. It's all coercion. (laughs) It's finding liberty in the coercion. And so the choice for us is what kind of state we want. And when it's put like that, I don't think many of us want Bezos's or Zuckerberg's or Thiel's state because it is a very, very elitist, non transparent, I think easily corrupted form of politics. It's not libertarianism at all. So, all of the things that sort of a, the good that comes from that world, if it's all got to be channeled through the state anyway, it's an invitation to rethink
1: politics rather than to rethink. Yeah technology. David Runtsman, thank you very much. Thanks, it was fun. You can read David Runtsman's piece in the latest issue of the LRB, along with TJ Clark on Velasquez and Lala Khalili on who owns the oil. This episode was produced by Eliane Glazer. The music is by Kieran Brunt. The producer of the LRB podcast is Anthony Wilkes.